Welcome to Ebenezer's Podcast, a podcast about hearing, understanding, and applying the Word of God to our lives. My name is Leighton Erickson, and I'm Ebenezer's Lead Pastor. Thanks for joining us today. Please check out our website at ebenezerbaptist.ca to connect with us and learn more about our ministries. I hope you enjoy the message. Thanks, Kel, uh, so much for your prayers this morning for our series. Amanda, for leading us in worship, the team as well. Great to be here together in person. Uh, good morning to you, and as well those who are our online group. Uh, great to have you with us this morning as well. Nearly 25 years ago, the boxing world was on the edge of its seat. Two formidable opponents were about to square off in a rematch for the heavyweight championship of the world. The Mike Tyson Evander Holyfield fight began with Holyfield dominating the first two rounds. He had in fact beaten Tyson the first time these two had met, and it looked like the rematch would be a repeat of the first fight. But in the third round, while Holyfield held Tyson in a clinch, Tyson rolled his head up over Holyfield's shoulder, and he literally bit off a piece of his ear. If you're curious, you can go online and look. My wife said, don't show those pictures, so I'm not. <laughs> now, I don't regularly follow uh, boxing or MMA or other, any other forms of combative sports, except to watch maybe a little bit of Olympic boxing. But I, I even know that there is no doubt whatsoever that Tyson's actions were way across the line in terms of following boxing etiquette and boxing rules and boxing guidelines. He had been beaten before. And now what appeared to be happening was, was that he was stooping to any means possible, even fighting dirty, even to, to, to biting in his attempt to win back the crown. For the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at our sermon series, The Invisible War. The Invisible War is one which every one of us is engaged in. It's one which our spiritual enemy, Satan, wages upon those of us who follow Jesus and name him as Lord. And like Tyson... Satan has already been defeated. The victory has already been won by Jesus at the cross. Revelation says the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. Now despite the fact that Satan has already been defeated, he's still fighting. He is still fighting and he is desperate, and he uses absolutely every lowly scheme and dirty tactic possible in his attempt to subdue those of us who, who love Jesus and follow Jesus, in his attempt to, to drag us away from our faith in Christ. As we start this message today, I want to be absolutely clear. Satan is completely opposed to God, and he will do everything he can to thwart God's plans and hinder God's people in their walk with God and their witness for him. And so in our message today, we want to expose more specifically... Satan's purposes, and Satan ta Satan's tactics. Not to glorify him, not to put him in the spotlight, but to shed the light on him and his ways in order that we may more effectively stand firm against the schemes of the devil as we're instructed in Ephesians chapter 6. So we got a lot of stuff that we're, we're working through here this morning. I'm just going to dive right in it. Um, there's been a few that have come after between the services with just questions, and, and we'll gladly interact around that stuff as well if there's things that you want more clarity on. All right, exposing Satan's purposes. Satan, Satan's purpose is to defame God and distort his character. Now, in order to unpack this, we need to go to the first place that we see Satan in Scripture, and that's Genesis chapter 3. He's interacting with Eve shortly after creation. 
Now, this conversation actually tells us a lot about how Satan operates. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, we see that he begins by questioning God's word. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat uh, from any tree in the garden? Now, notice he didn't deny that God had spoken to her. He simply questioned whether Eve had gotten it right. Perhaps he misunderstood. Maybe you ought to rethink. That kind of a, a nuance is what he was trying to spin this with. Now, this is the way that Satan planted the initial seed of doubt in Eve's mind. Now, at this point, Satan isn't directly opposing God, but he's simply opening the door a little bit to doubt. Then in verse 4, we see that Satan ups his game a little bit. He gets a little more brave, and he directly contradicts what God has said. The woman said in verse 2, and then I, I shorten that up, but then in verse 3, the woman said, God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. Verse 4, Satan you will certainly not die, the certain said to the woman. Now notice the shift from questioning what God had said to denying God's instruction was only a small step. And when Eve listened to Satan questioning God's word, she opened herself up to Satan's denial of God's word. And then finally he gets braver again, and in verse 5, he, Satan substitutes his own lie. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Adam and Eve were already made in the image of God, but Satan tempted them with the same ambition that was his own downfall, to be like God. Now we know from the early chapters of Genesis that Adam and Eve bought into Satan's lie, and in doing so brought sin into the world through their act of disobedience. See, believing the lie has massive consequences. So it's very important for us this morning to notice that path from planting that seed to actually believing and, and taking action on that lie. That was built as Satan twisted and distorted what God had said. His deceitful defamation brought God's truthfulness and even his goodness and sufficiency into question. And this is how Satan operates. He twists what God has said. He twists and, and turns what God has accomplished, and he even distorts the character of God. Now, if you remember Cal's message from last week, Satan's a created being. As such, he's not like God in terms of being all-powerful and all-knowing. He's not able to create anything in and of himself, anything of his own. And so he twists and turns and distorts what God has said, what God has done, and even who God is. He's a master of character defamation and character assassination. And he does this all in an effort to keep us from trusting in God and putting our faith in him. Second purpose. Satan's purpose is to blind people from seeing the light of the gospel. 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. When I was working in youth ministry way back, um, there was a young fellow in our, in our community who started attending youth group. He really enjoyed it, and he started to come to the Sunday morning services. And one particular Sunday, he says to me, can you hear what they're talking about? Well, yeah, <laughs> I can hear what they're talking about. You can't you hear? Don't you understand? Stand like the language that they're using? No, I just can't hear. Well, what do you mean you can't hear? Like, is there a dead spot in the sound systems? I've been in, in larger facilities, and in the corner sometimes the sound isn't clear. No, I just can't hear anything at all that's said from the pulpit. That's bizarre, right? So in that moment, we decided this has got to be a spiritual issue. This young guy had come from a pretty rough home. And it appeared to us that, that Satan had a bit of a foothold there, a bit of a grip in his life, and he didn't want to give that up. And so we prayed. 
that he'd be able to hear what was being spoken, what was being preached from the pulpit, and he could hear. He could hear what was being said. Satan does anything that he can to blind people from seeing the light of the gospel. He will even literally at times block us from hearing what's being spoken, what's being said. He does everything he can to keep us from from embracing what God has for us. And he goes to great lengths. Matthew 13 says, Listen then to what the parable of the sower means. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and doesn't understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in their heart. This is the seed that's sown along the path. So here's another purpose of Satan. He tries to get us to act independently of God. Now, there's a lot that we can learn about Satan's purposes by examining his interactions with biblical characters. So even in early on in Genesis was one. For the next few points, we'll be looking at Satan's interaction with Jesus and his temptation in uh, Luke chapter 4. Uh, verse 1. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by Satan into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you're the Son of God, tell the stone to become bread. Jesus answered, It's written, Man shall not live on bread alone. <clears throat> Excuse me. As we look at the temptation of Jesus, for me personally, I found it a little easier to understand um, by kind of breaking it down into a couple of different aspects. The physical aspect of fasting for such a long period of time is just kind of one side that I want to look at. And then the spiritual aspect of that actual temptation. The physical demands of fasting 40 days would have been incredible. It's been shown that the human body can actually go without food for 40 days, and sometimes even longer. However, survival experts say the human body can only go without water for two to three days. So what was the setting of Jesus' fast? It was in the desert. Now, obviously, that would have accelerated dehydration, making it very difficult for Jesus physically. He had to have depended largely upon his heavenly Father for all that was needed to maintain his fast for that length of time in that difficult setting. He was depending on the Father for that. Now, the passage also tells us, excuse me, that in addition to this time of fasting, the devil came and tempted Jesus. And he responded by quoting Scripture, Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 2 and 3. And these are actually not the words of a, a, a biblical character in the past. These are the very words of God as he spoke to Moses from Deuteronomy. And so Jesus is using not his own words or the words of, of another character, but those of God to refute the devil's temptation. Again, he is relying completely upon the Father to withstand the testing that he was undergoing. The physical testing, that aspect of it, is relying upon the Father. The spiritual aspect, he is relying upon the Father. When Satan begins to tempt Jesus, it appears that he starts with a question, if you're the Son of God. It's actually not a question. It's a statement of fact. Satan was fully aware of who Jesus truly was, and he's attempting to get Jesus to use his authority as the Son of God to meet his needs. If you're the Son of God, tell the stone to become bread. Do you get what's going on here? The devil is tempting Jesus to abandon his reliance upon the Father and trust in his own abilities instead. It really looks like this. Since you're the Son of God, you have the authority to do this. Go ahead. One of God's deepest longings for those of us who follow him is that we trust in him totally and rely on him completely. A well-known verse for many of us, Proverbs 3, starting at 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him and he will make your path straight. 
God wants us to trust him completely. But the devil knows that when we depend upon the Lord completely, when we trust him completely, our faith grows, our relationship with God grows, the effectiveness of our walk with God grows, our witness becomes more effective. He doesn't want that. And see, so he does everything he possibly can to get us to rely on our own strength instead of on the Lord's strength. Satan's purpose is to have us abandon our love and loyalty to God. Verse 5, Then the devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It's been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, It's written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Now in Matthew, we're told that the high place Jesus was taken to was, was a mountain. And there, there are some who say he was probably shown, possibly shown through a vision, you know, all of the grandeur of the world. And the devil tempts him. You can have all of this, but you need to bow down and worship me. That's, what, that's his question. That's his request. And again, Jesus responds with Scripture. Again, it's from Deuteronomy. Again, it's the words of God, not of anyone else. Chapter 6, verse 13, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. See, God desires our worship. And in fact, he is the only one who deserves our worship. The first two of the Ten Commandments says this, I am the Lord your God, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven, heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. Now, if Jesus would have given in to this temptation, he obviously would have broken those commandments. But that act would have been based upon something happening internally with him. A shift of loyalty, a shift of the heart. Bowing to the enemy would have indicated that Jesus had traded his love and devotion for the Father for all that the world could offer. Now, it's also important for us to understand that giving into this temptation would have also discredited Jesus as a perfect sacrifice for our sin. Had Jesus bowed, our salvation through him would have been unattainable. But he understood why the Father had sent him into our world, and he kept his focus on the Father's plan, and he accomplished what he had for him. Despite the fact this tactic of Satan is centuries old, his strategy hasn't changed. He still attempts to entice those of us who love God to trade, to trade it all away for those things that the world offers. And so I think a question for us this morning, are we able to keep our hearts and minds focused on what the Lord has for us? Whatever that might be, or have we traded it away for kingdom, traded away rather his kingdom purposes for those things that the world offers? Satan purpose, uh, purposes to have us test God. Now, this one's a little harder to understand, but I'll, hopefully we'll unpack it clearly here this morning. Verse 9, the devil led him up to Jerusalem and he had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you're the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here, for it's written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, It is said, it is written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Now Satan appears to be getting a little craftier in his temptation strategy, a little sneakier, and this time he uses scripture to tempt Jesus. But he takes it out of context. And Jesus easily recognizes the error, and he names it for what it is. Excuse me a minute here. He realizes it's a test. Now, to test God 
is an attempt to have God act in a way that puts his power on display. When we boil it down, it's really a request to have God put on a show for you. Jesus responded to this temptation by again quoting the words of God from Deuteronomy, this time chapter 6, verse 16. And we know those, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Now, during his earthly ministry, there were others who asked him to put the power of God on display. Matthew 12, then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Now, Jesus had been healing. He'd been feeding the masses, but they weren't asking for that. They were asking literally to, to have Jesus perform some sign in the heavens, to do something in the sky, whatever that might look like, to manipulate the, the sun or you know, something of that nature, something that grand. But Jesus refused their request, and he pointed instead to his impending death and resurrection. This, in fact, is God's greatest sign of his love towards all of us. He answered them, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah, who was in the whale three days and then was, was um, <laughs> what's the technical word that I want to use here? He came out of the whale in three days. So there's that imagery of being, being laid in the tomb and then rising three days later. That's the picture that's there. Now, putting God to the test is not how the follower of Jesus should behave, really. We're called to trust God and follow him. Now, this doesn't mean that we shouldn't ask for miracles. God loves it when we trust him and come in faith. But God isn't our puppet. And that's the sin that's here. We shouldn't build a situation. We shouldn't create a, 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 a space where the need for God to act is, is built by ourselves so that he can be put on display. He's not our puppet. God is our Lord. He's our king. And that's the sin that was, that was pointed out in that, that temptation. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. So we've looked at five of Satan's purposes that we've seen in, in passages through interactions with, with, um, with Jesus, with, with Eve. And now we want to move on to a discussion of his tactics. This is a ton of stuff here. I feel after first service, I felt like I had a fire hose up here. You know, I, I hope that you're not getting overwhelmed by the amount of stuff that's here. But like prayerfully listen, maybe one of these will... will um, really be more meaningful for you. So um, as we move into this section, I want to give credit to a gentleman named Dave Buring. Some of you know that name. He is the author of a book that we've used here for discipleship extensively um, called The Discipleship Journey. Now he does a really good job of exposing and explaining many of Satan's tactics. And so I'm sharing this next section of my sermon and I'm relying very heavily on, on Dave's resources here. And I just want to give credit where credit is due. Ephesians 6.11 tells us that Satan has schemes which he uses against the people of God. And there's actually a few examples in Scripture where we see some of these, these schemes at work. 1 Chronicles 2.21 verse 1. Satan rose up against Israel and incited David to take a census of, of the nation. So counting all the people included the fighting men. And that was something that God did not want David to do because he shifted his trust then from God to his army. He incited him to do that. Now, here's another example. Judas Iscariot. He was the one who betrayed Jesus. Um, but this betrayal was initiated by Satan. John 13, 2. The evening meal was in process, progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Now, in 2 Corinthians uh, 2, 11, Paul shares it's important that we know Satan's tactics. 
He says it's important that we know his schemes so that he may not, quote-unquote, outwit us. So it's important that we understand these things. We need to be aware of these, these strategies for a few reasons. First of all, so that we can recognize when we're under attack, but also so that we can understand how to regain our freedom from, from that attack. Now, here's some of Satan's schemes. There's seven of them here this morning. The first one is pride. Satan will prime our pride. This sin originated uh, with the devil himself. In Isaiah 14, we find five I wills of Satan, which are related to his desire to make himself like God. And this is, this is God speaking through the prophet Isaiah. You, Satan, said in your heart, I will ascend to the heavens. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly. I will ascend atop, above rather the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Many of our sin issues are rooted in pride. Pride opens our life to the attack of the enemy. Pride breeds things like selfishness, independence, rebellion from God, and the desire to follow that sinful nature that we still all have. We give Satan a grip on our soul to the degree that we choose to walk in pride. Since pride is so destructive, we need to be very aware of the enemy's attempts to, to stoke our pride. It isolates us from God, and the pride just continues to build. James actually tells us how to deal with pride. Scripture says God opposes the proud, but he shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. When sensing that you're being challenged in an area regarding pride, we need to humbly face that. We need to come in humility and depend upon the Lord. Resist the devil, draw near to God, and he will flee from you. Humility, drawing near to God, defeats pride. Unbelief, a second tactic, a second strategy. We find this thing in the very beginning, in the garden with Adam and Eve. And we saw earlier, Satan asked this question of Eve. Did God really say? Now, from the beginning, Satan has tried to sow distrust of God within the human heart. The enemy uses this tactic of unbelief to lead us to believe things about God and about other people and even ourselves that are untrue. Things which ultimately rob us of the joy that he's promised us as his children. God wants us to completely believe in who he is and in the truth of his word. Hebrews says, without faith, it's impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Our unbelief opens the door for the enemy to blind us spiritually and deceive us. And we can, we can fight against that by choosing faith, to believe, to walk in faith. The next tactic, deception. Earlier in Luke, we read, uh, we read of the temptation of Jesus. We saw that Satan uses even the very words of Scripture to try to deceive Jesus. Now, sometimes his deception is obvious, but most often it comes to us woven in a cloak of truth. The devil knows the formula well. The unique blend of falsehood mixed with a portion of truth designed to challenge our individual vulnerabilities. It's, a, it's like a tailor-made concoction of deception designed to put us into a, a bit of a stupor, and then we just continue to fall for it continually, one after another after another. Think about the world's cults for a second. Though vast differences exist, they all contain fragments of truth, making them plausible and attractive for those who are seeking God. Deception distorts truth, and it, and it, it inserts this filter into our minds, um, causing us to make, actual, to, to, to make it difficult for us to distinguish actual truth from deception. And yet truth 
defeats deception. We need to embrace the truth. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth. Strongholds is an interesting tactic. Ephesians 4, 25 through 27, major pieces of those verses here. Each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor. In your anger, don't sin. Do not give the devil a foothold. Now, the word foothold is translated as place or opportunity. It literally means a space. In other words, Paul is saying here, we're not to give the enemy an opportunity to make a place or gain a space in our lives. If we give the devil a foothold in our lives, he'll quickly set up camp. He only needs a little crevice to get started, and he'll work to imprison us within a particular pattern of sin. See, footholds become strongholds. Strongholds are entrenched patterns of thought contrary to the will of God that cause us to feel powerless to change. Three parts to this definition. They are entrenched patterns of thought. Strongholds begin in our thinking. They begin in our minds. They're contrary to the will of God. They're not aligned with God's character, with God's ways, or God's word. And we often feel powerless to change them. Strongholds are marked by a sense of hopelessness, hopelessness and an inability to bring about change. Now, from a military perspective, strongholds are built on places that are naturally already strong, strong places. Fortresses are often built on top of a hill or near important bodies of water. So we need to be completely aware of the fact that Satan always... He doesn't always just attack us in our weaknesses. Sometimes he'll manipulate and actually attack us in our strong areas. He may target our natural strengths, causing us to rely too heavily on our own abilities, tempting us to place our confidence in ourselves rather than on what God wants to do through us. Satan tries to establish strongholds in our thinking to keep us bound in this false belief system. And strongholds can affect areas like like pride, fear, poor self-esteem, and all kinds of, of other things that will impact us. Freedom comes from strongholds. As we acknowledge our need of God to gain victory and rightly align ourselves with Him and with His Word. That means confessing any areas where we may have allowed Satan to gain a foothold. Sometimes these are knowingly. like They happen to us. We know that they happen. Sometimes we do them unknowingly. Confess those areas and then refute the stronghold in Jesus' name. Now, as I was working on this part of the message, the idea of, of spiritual footholds and spiritual strongholds just kept coming back to my mind. And I think if, if we sense that, sometimes that's God speaking to us. We need to pay attention to that. So I prayed about that. And actually spent some time confessing where I had unknowingly allowed the enemy to get a foothold in my life. And then I refuted that in Jesus' name, you know, the stronghold that had been built. Later that day, that same afternoon, <laughs> I got a phone call from someone um, regarding a situation that happened like seven, eight years ago. And they actually came and they, they made a past hurt right. I'm going, wow, this has got to be got to work. Strongholds can be built in our lives and we don't even know it. But God helps us recognize them and, and battle them and defeat them. 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Satan loves to exploit relational wounds. That's the next one. 
Some of the greatest blessings we can experience come through relationships. Now, the enemy recognizes this, and so he tries to hinder our relationships and use them as tools that bring hurt and woundedness and disappointment. Some of our relational wounds are so deep that they even cripple our thinking and our emotions. The enemy uses bad relational experiences to isolate us from others, to create a breeding ground for anger and bitterness, and to prevent us from enjoying friendships that, that pursue kingdom purposes together. In Genesis chapters 37 through 50, 13 chapters, we read the story of Joseph. Now, his brothers hated him so much that they sold him into slavery, and Joseph was taken to Egypt. Now, all this time, through these years in Egypt, through all this experience, Joseph had ample opportunity to live the rest of his life in bitterness. But God was at work. He raised Joseph up to a position of power in Egypt. And when his brothers came in a time of famine to buy food, Joseph was actually in authority over them, and they didn't recognize him. He could have had, like, intense revenge on them right there in that moment. But he chose not to. God was at work. Joseph broke before God and he forgave his brothers and that paved the way for that relationship to be restored. And that's really the only way that we can, can work with relational wounds. That's to forgive. Another uh, couple of tools of the enemy. Discouragement and condemnation. Discouragement brings with it that sense of failure, loneliness, even despair. Condemnation appears as, as accusation confusion and a sense of insufficiency. When we're talking of condemnation, now it's important though to recognize the difference between condemnation and conviction. <clears throat> conviction is from God. Conviction is a clear exposing of our sin and yet there's hope that comes with it. When conviction comes, God also provides a way out, and that's through humility, through confession, and through forgiveness. So when we're feeling conviction, that strong sense that I have done something that's broken a law of God, we need to ask the Holy Spirit to reveal sin in our lives, ask for forgiveness, ask for cleansing, refute the enemy in that, and then move on in that freedom that comes. Now, on the other hand, condemnation, that's different. It brings confusion a sense of failure, and it often leaves us feeling depressed. Now, we can respond to condemnation, and both of these will appear as condemnation initially, but as God tests it and filters it, um, condemnation may actually be conviction. Okay, we got to keep those things clear. But if there's condemnation there, and if you ask the Holy Spirit to reveal any sin, and there is no conviction that comes as a result of that, then that is just condemnation that's coming by the enemy. We need to recognize it as condemnation, not conviction. Resist the enemy in Jesus' name and move forward. The story of Elijah from 1 Kings 19 is actually a good example of someone who was dealing with intense discouragement. After a huge spiritual victory over the prophets of Baal, Elijah's life is threatened by Queen Jezebel. And so in desperation, he, he runs and he hides out in the wilderness. He tries to get away from her. And at the deepest point of his discouragement, Elijah actually asks God to end his life. He's that low. And yet in response to this deep discouragement, God's at work. And he sends an angel to minister to Elijah. And then actually he comes and speaks to him. Um, not through the, not through the uh, 
the earthquake, not through all these different signs, but in that still small voice that came at the end of that time, God spoke to him and encouraged him. So when you're experiencing discouragement, watch for these things. God will send other people. He'll send them your way to encourage you. And he'll speak to those who love him and follow him. We need to watch for that. He encourages us in those ways. Lastly, distraction. Satan will attempt to shift your focus off Jesus. Now, this can take a lot of different forms. I think in North America, one of the biggest, though, is probably busyness. Busyness can rob us of that time that could have been spent with God. The inappropriate pursuit of possessions and pleasure and praise from others can lead us down a long, slippery slope of misguided priorities. Relationships can take priority over our walk with Jesus. Even ministry can become what we live for instead of loving Jesus with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Satan knows that the wrong focus can result in a shallow faith leaving us spiritually thin and discontent. So he works to distract us. He throws all these different things our way in order to, to pull us away from, from walking with God. In Luke 10, 38 and following, we find the story of Mary and Martha. Jesus had gone to their place for, for dinner, and Martha was busying herself with all the preparations, and, and Mary was sitting, listening to Jesus. As we read through this story, we see that there's, there's this priority that comes out. There's this understanding of who rightfully deserves to be the focus of our attention. And, and it's important to notice, Jesus didn't condemn Martha for busying herself in service. But he did remind her that there was only one thing necessary, and that one thing was to sit at Jesus' feet. Now, we've covered a lot of stuff here this morning. I hope you're not feeling like you uh, were drinking from a fire hose this morning. Um, <clears throat> a lot of stuff, five major purposes of Satan, I think seven tactics that he used to damage our walk with God and our witness. Now, in closing, I want to remind us of what was mentioned at the start. Satan's already been defeated. The victory's been won by Jesus at the cross. And so we need to be aware of Satan's uh, tactics this morning, but we don't need to fear them. We don't need to fear them. We need to be aware but we don't need to be afraid because the victory's already been won by Jesus. And if we're in Jesus, the victory is ours as well through him. So I'm going to invite the worship team to come on up at this point. Um, and I'll just close with a couple of thoughts here. So how can I learn to walk in victory? The victory that's ours in Christ Jesus. February 11th and 12th, Kel talked about this earlier. It's a Friday evening and a Saturday. We're planning our break-free weekend. This will be a time of deeper teaching time of interaction with one another and with, with those uh, who are doing the teaching, where we'll experience living in the power and freedom of our identity in Christ. This promises to be a powerful time together, but we need your help. First of all, we need you to sign up. We need you to attend this weekend. You can sign up on the church website. There should be some drop-downs and buttons there that are easily accessible. EbenezerBaptist.ca, church website's right there. Uh, we also have, from what I understand, uh, a text option for signing up, 306-249-0084, the church number. Just text that, and you can sign up through that as well. Secondly, we want you to be in prayer for this weekend. This is the sort of ministry that Satan hates. We desperately need prayer coverage for this time. And so as, as a church family, um, please be in prayer for that time. And we're also going to be recruiting a, a more intentional prayer team for that time. If you'd like to be a part of that, um, just watch for that, and we can connect you with that as well. 
I'm going to invite Amanda to lead us uh, in a song in a minute. As we do that, please feel free to come to the front if you'd like prayer. There's staff and, and other church leaders will be available to, to pray with you. Maybe there's something you pray, want to pray about regarding um, an issue that you came to mind during our message this morning. Maybe you want to pray about other things. We, we would welcome you to come. We'd love to pray with you. Um, and before we have this, end, this last song, I'm just going to close this portion in prayer. Father, I want to thank you this morning that you love us, that you have provided for us through Jesus, that the victory is, is already been won through Christ. And I thank you that this morning we can have this conversation um, regarding the tactics and schemes and purposes of the enemy. And I pray that as your children, if we have um, left a, a spot in our lives open, that we would come and that we would deal with that, that we would rely on your strength to... Um, to walk in the freedom that you have for us. And Lord, today, if there are any who have not heard clearly, I pray that you might, by your Spirit, might just bring understanding um, as we would take the opportunity to just kind of work through what's been shared here this morning. And I thank you most of all that we need not fear, that the enemy has been thrown down, that the victory has already been won through Jesus Christ, and that because of him, we can walk in victory as well. And so we cling to that today. We rely on that today for our walk with you and for our witness for you. We ask for that courage. We ask for that power and authority in our lives. We ask that we might um, be able to, to understand that and recognize that and walk in that freedom that comes with you. Thank you for this time. Thank you for this opportunity. Thank you for the fact that the battle has been won and the victory. Well, thank you for listening. Don't forget to check out our church website at ebenezerbaptist.ca. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can let us know by clicking like and by subscribing to our podcast channel. God bless you and thanks for listening.